Okay, so uh, does anyone have a question for uh, any of us here? So Beth, do you have a question? Yeah, I do. You mentioned about competency, which was really fascinating. Um, is it, were you saying that it used to be that we generally thought everybody is competent to kind of run, run this own life, and then now we defer to experts? And how can I read more about that so I can get a, a kind of, like become fluent so I can about that sure. sure. So uh, the question has to do with competence and the uh, the uh, the notion that uh, Joshua Mitchell uh, presents in some of his writing that in uh, the American Republic there was the assumption of competence uh, with regard to citizenry, the citizenry. So the, a competent citizenry can. Uh, be entrusted to govern itself. And then we get to the, you know, with the, with the progressives with Woodrow Wilson and, you know, uh, Teddy Roosevelt and those guys, uh, where we have an elite uh, uh, expert class who are competent, who uh, run the, the administrative state and manage the rest of us, <laughs> you know, and that's the kind of thing. So uh, she's wondering if there's something that we can direct her to that uh, speaks to citizen competency. Now, I, I guess uh, Tocqueville comes to mind. You know, democracy in America. That's a. That's not like a uh, exclusively dedicated to that theme, but that's certainly something that runs through uh, that work because he's just observing. Uh, you know, the American Republic in the early, you know, nineteenth century, and he's describing it for his readers in France, and he you know, notes that essentially you have is, uh, you know, acquisitive, true, but also responsible citizens in America who manage their own affairs and don't need to be governed by an, a set of aristocrats. But is there anything that comes, comes to your mind, guys? Yeah, I don't actually know anybody who's addressed the topic. I think Tocqueville may be your best choice. Yeah. And I, you know, I mean, I just, I, you know, this past weekend, I took a little trip up to the village of Sturbridge. I, don't, I know oh, yeah. you guys I know that. Uh, I think one, one or both of you recommended I go. But one of the things you see of that time in that town, it's a, it's a historic village. Uh, it, what is it? Uh, early 19th century. Early 19th century. My daughter. 1830, somewhere around there. Yeah, my daughter was one of the yeah, reenactors there. Yeah, one summer. Oh, okay. Well, what you see is how everyone is is productive and competent in a variety of things, and how that plays into that 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 the the advancement of the society. And you can see the levels of advancement right there in the actual building and the the way that the, even the very houses change shape and and style and in the in the way in which everyone is interacting. Yep. Um, and also uh, competent and productive. I mean, it, it's it's stunning. Well, this is what Mitchell is getting at. So Mitchell teaches at Georgetown. He's a political philosopher, teaches at Georgetown. And uh, his his observation is, is that in mediating institutions, families, churches, neighborhood associations, small businesses, that's where competence is absolutely uh, necessary for things to function. It's only when you get into large institutions you know, sort of corp large corporations, factories, where you have people uh, told that they have to focus on a, just a, a, a very narrow range of things. And this is 
you know, the, the guy who's screwing on the bolt on the, on the car. This is the guy in the cubicle who only deals with one sliver of information every day uh, and consequently have no sort of sense of the whole. And, and interestingly, before you finish that, is one of the things uh, I, I saw one of the guys at, uh, playing in costume a guitar from the period, which was modeled exactly on a guitar of the period, which was by the Martin Corporation, who makes guitars to this day and some very nice ones. Well, interestingly, is Martin um, back then was involved with cabinet making, but loved making guitars. But he was at the time trying to to sell the guitars basically in Germany, but Germany refused to get allow him to sell guitars and trade because he was not trained by their masters, right? They, you know, they they had a kind of particular craftsmanship that they would only bless. So he ends up coming this is to why, the this U.S. Why Germans, Germans don't innovate. I mean, they, they right. you know, we innovate. That's right. And then they take and perfect. <laughs> so he comes, he comes here, and we know the rest of the story. Right, right. It's yeah. fun. It's fun. Yeah, you know, Chris, what you were saying about uh, competence in, in small businesses and intermediate institutions and such actually reminds me of Machiavelli. Yeah. Um, Machiavelli argued that Florence ought to be, by rights, a republic, but it the people lacked the virtue necessary to make it run. And so what needed to be done is the institutions of society had to be revitalized in order for the people to have an environment in which to learn virtue so that they can once again restore the republic. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Larson. Um, I guess as I was, and this, this may or may not be a question as much as just a, me trying to wrap my head around what you guys were saying and, and at least what, what came up in my head to be somewhat of the point, maybe, is that, is that, he's starting all the way back with Augustine and, and sort of the, the degradation of the personal and the, and the, and the sanctity of the, of, uh, of human beings, all the way up to today, it's, the story seems to be almost that with all of the right conditions in place, you know, pragmatism, utilitarianism, and, and so on and so forth. Um, we've we've ended up in a place where we almost have it seems like this emergent distributed totalitarianism, like where, where you don't need a you don't need a uh, Mussolini or a or a Hitler um, aspiring elites volunteer uh, are right. conscripted voluntarily um, right. to 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 be part of the. The, the totalitarian you know, machine. Uh, right. Is that, is that? Yeah. Yeah. So, so the, the comment, uh, guys, is that we find ourselves in a situation where because of the intellectual trends that have brought us to this point, pragmatism, et cetera, uh, and because of certain other developments in our society, we no longer need a Hitler or Mussolini. This is something that, um, uh, our elites volunteer to to institute without uh, some madman uh, threatening them, <laughs> which is. But but what a, what a, you know. I, so uh, how to respond to that statement? I think that's true. I think your 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 comment's true, Larson. And my take on it is that uh, elites, generally speaking, don't really believe in anybody but elites. And doesn't matter how much. Uh, 
you know, they fail or how silly they become uh, or how much evidence they have just in the daily, you know, sort of experience that they have of actually watching people competently manage themselves. <laughs> they just don't believe in them, you know. Uh, what do you guys think? Any thoughts? I mean, I, I, I've often thought about, you know, what would it take or could could something happen in which they a, a kind of a, a self reflection in in someone from that world could could arouse them to a more truthful way of living. Um, um, and I, I don't know. I mean, I think I, you figure someone, I mean, I think you, you think of someone who threw the elite political class off in, in our culture was, you know, a crass, you know, businessman like Trump. Um, and it, Trump didn't come, come so much speaking some kind of absolute truth or anything else. He, he, but he did expose a kind of um, something that didn't, they didn't want to let out of the bag, right? Is how, how much they were selling the rest of us down the river in many cases and benefiting it from it. But it didn't change them. They basically said the best thing we can do is get rid of this guy, create another untruth. And so I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I my, don't, my, I, sense, my sense is Trump had gr great political instincts and recognized a resentment that was already there. He just threw fire on it. Or, or oil yeah. on the fire, so to speak. Yeah. So it was there. For, I've, in my entire life, there's I've I've witnessed resentment against elites, uh, and it's yeah. been getting stronger over the course of my life. I, I think right and, now it's probably at fever pitch from the temperature gauges I'm um, reading about. Yeah, and, well, and I think that that elites, rather than and then sort of get the wake up call and say, "Wow, we better uh, uh, change our approach." Their their approach was, "Well, we just need to get rid of this guy, and everything will go back to normal." Yeah, the, the the this is looking at it from the opposite end of the um, of the question. I think we're asking why there's a revolt against them. The question is how do you, how did they get to where they are, where they don't need a Hitler, a Mussolini, a Stalin, a um, Mao, a Pol Pot, or whatever to to lead them? And I think the answer is frankly found in the success of the strategy of the new left going all the way back to the late 60s and 70s, where they very self-consciously took over systematically the key institutions mm -hmm. that uh, they understood as being the levers of culture. That is to say, media, education, law, and politics. And so what we have is a cohesive, coherent elite that is all bought into a single ideology and yeah. as a result, it becomes self-reinforcing. As soon as one part of it moves in one direction, the rest of it moves with it because they're all basically ideologues. Yeah, yeah. I think that's right, Glenn. And, and I think that um, a lot of good-hearted people who are, you know, local folks who try to contribute to their the welfare of their local communities are still largely in the dark about this. And... Yeah. It's hard for them to accept the truth. So there are, there are, you know, there is your, your, you know, tinfoil hat uncle who sees a conspiracy in everything. And, <laughs> you know, he's been seeing it forever. And then, and then there are people who are kind of reluctantly saying, yeah, I really do think this is getting insane. And, but there are still a lot of folks out there uh, 
because maybe they just don't know anybody personally who are members of the elite. Um, you know, the three of us have had the misfortune of knowing many of these people personally, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and having arguments with them in different settings. And, and so it doesn't catch a, a person by surprise if they've been in Madison or Oxford or Cambridge or places like that. We've, we've seen that, you know, uh, for 20, 30, 40 years. And it's and it's not going to go away. That's the other thing. I think a lot of good-hearted yeah. people really think this is a fad. It'll go away. It'll blow over. It's going to go back to normals again. No, no, it's not. Um, yeah. This is something that's been building for uh, you know uh, hundreds of years and has kind of gotten a lot worse in the last thirty, forty. But anyway, uh, other questions? Yeah. I was just curious if any of you guys saw the Tucker Carlson interview with Kanye West, especially his commentary on uh, how elites and elite influencers, yeah, I think the example he used was his wife, Kim Kardashian, and, and how they're surrounded by these influential people to, make, to teach them what to fear and so steer their public persona and you know, endorsing COVID or whatever. Yeah, I didn't see that. I find it easy to believe. <laughs> but uh, uh, the comment is that uh, there was an interview with Kanye West uh, by Tucker Carlson, and Kanye uh, talks uh, about how uh, elites have tried to steer, uh, you know, public figures, uh, pop stars, et cetera, to uh, help promote, you know, the sort of the agenda that the elites want to see promoted, for example, with COVID or whatever. Uh, did, did either of you guys see that interview? I'm aware of it, but I, I didn't watch it. Yeah, I, I didn't see see the interview, but I, I mean, I think he he's he's saying what you're not allowed to say from that world, um, yeah. and, and I think he's he's caught he's caught in 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 in, in the middle of a lot of you know struggles of trying in some way to to um have some sense of integrity um yeah. and yeah he strikes me as being uh you know like uh jk rowling uh he's too yeah. big to really cancel yeah uh, so he's just kind of written off as a kook you know yeah. like she's written off as like a an angry you know uh you know sort of second wave feminist who can't accept the new <laughs> world, you know, that kind of thing, even though she's just basically saying, you know, there really are differences between men and women, <laughs> that kind of thing. Uh, so. He's internalized the patriarchy. That. <laughs> <laughs> so, did, did, did you see what somebody actually tweeted to, to JK Rowling? Um, how how can you how can you stand to look at yourself in the mirror when you realize how many thousands or tens of thousands of fans you've lost? And she says, "I look at my royalty checks." <laughs> That's right. Thirty-two million last quarter. I feel pretty good. <laughs> well, I, I'll get to you, Giddy, in a minute. But yep. Um, it's maybe a two-part question, but. In regard to competency and utilitarianism, um, my, the thing that strikes me is what that is in the church. Um, how there's very much a, uh, the feeling as a member to be useful um, and a lack of trust in our competency as parents. And so 
I guess kind of wanting to know where that came from. How how is it that that form of church order has become common? That I've noticed it a couple of times in different churches that there's just a general lack of uh, considering us as competent and then to as we're useful. We're useful for uh, tithing, for missions, or, right. but not necessarily for anything local or yeah. um, for our own children. Yeah, that's an interesting observation. I think I, I think I can see what you're talking about. I've seen it. So the, the comment is uh, a lot of folks in their churches uh, feel patronized or maybe uh, uh, they're told that they're not competent to do the things that they actually are competent to do, like raise their kids. <laughs> and uh, at the same time, they're used by church leaders to further the institutional say, agenda or goals of the institution through giving or whatever, you know. I guess my thought would be uh, that, you know, as a pastor, uh, there has been a transition in the last, say, 50 years with regard to the model pastor. What is the, the pastor to be understood as, to, to, as doing? And uh, it, we've gone from a kind of a biblical way of thinking about pastoral ministry to a corporate uh, approach. So you are a successful pastor if you are the CEO of a growing corporate body, a corporation, you know, uh, you know, and that's what, you know, sort of behind a lot of the, uh, say, strategies that you see in megachurches uh, where yeah. you're trying to uh, maybe sell a particular thing, the gospel, you know, to take your uh, market segments, youth, you know, moms. You know, moms with kids. <laughs> I mean, you really break it down really far. You know, you end up with all these sort of things, and you lose sight of sort of the creation, and in what what's included in the creation is the family unit, and how that's supposed to be functioning as as sort of a whole. But where did the church lose lose sight of the importance of the family? That. That's where my, I don't understand why the break in that, like I see why the world would not have value for the family, but how could the church? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Well, because the church is corrupt, <laughs> you know, just kind of put it, put it bluntly, uh, because what, because many of the, many times churches uh, are being measured by certain things. So uh, just think about it this way. So uh, very often, a, a, a pastor receives his kind of social credibility based on the size of his congregation or the amount of money that has been, you know, contributed <clears throat> to that work, things of that nature. And then you say, well, how can I engineer this to get more of that, those sorts of things? And you lose touch with um, certain basic biblical practices and ways of thinking that were true uh, that characterized pastoral ministry maybe in earlier times. So there's kind of a, in a market driven industrial sort of mindset that mm -hmm. comes into play. The car and the camera, that's what did it, right? Well, the car, it means that you can go a long way to church, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. More glory. Yep. Yep. Yeah. 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 There, there, the joke in ministry is you have, you know, if you heard of the, the Oedipus complex, there's the edifice <laughs> complex. <laughs> the more you're building, the more important you are. <laughs> now, the uh, the traditional measures are sometimes called the ABCs: attendance, buildings, and cash. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's yeah. sometimes also called the three Bs: 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. Buildings, you know. budgets, and butts. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so those are some cheerful thoughts. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, Gideon. Yeah, I've got a couple questions here. I'll try to kind of boil them down. Um, can you talk a little more about competence and how it specifically relates to elitism and utilitarianism? That's I am connecting those two together before. Okay. So utilitarianism is basically an outlook. So the question is: is how does competency relate to utilitarianism and what was the other one uh, elitism. elitism okay so let me let me make a uh, an, an, an attempt at answering the question and then you guys go ahead and add whatever you want but i think that what you have with uh, competency is the is the ideal that people should be competent to manage their own affairs and conduct their own uh you know uh lives and their and pursue their own interests uh and in order for that to happen, they have to be, in large part, trusted and left alone, which leaves elites with nothing to do. <laughs> so elites hate having nothing to do. The elites love to tell other people what to do. And uh, utilitarianism is a philosophy that sort of instrumentalizes people and, and says, okay, my uh, way of sort of dealing with you is you do this uh, and, or do this. Uh, who was the guy that was behind uh, scientific management? You, you remember the, uh, it was like uh, early 20th century, is it Winslow something? Yeah, I, I'm just drawing a blank in the name. But this was a guy who, uh, who developed a, an, an, a sort of an approach to managing human beings based that he described as scientific management, where he would time you for your various movements. And he realized... Taylor? That, yep, that's it. Taylor, that's it. If, you, yeah. if I can... Uh, you know, sort of script or choreograph all of your movements and make them repetitive, I can make a human machine of various parts that in which each part has zero idea what's going on, (laughs) except I do, I know what's going on. (laughs) And then you're all kind of fitted together. So utilitarianism gives me the kind of mental framework within which to do that. And, you know, with this outlook, there's certainly... Uh, a lot to be said for efficiency. You know, that lead to more efficiency, but it also led to less uh, freedom to, uh, you know, sort of be creative. And what did they do? Well, that's where the hobby movement came in. That's where, you know, you go home and you have your your hobbies where you allow your creative energies to, 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 to run, you know, wherever they want to go. But at work, you just do as you're told. So it, and it's happening. You know, we see it in places like McDonald's. I mean, that's the way McDonald's works. But we see it increasingly even in more sophisticated place, you know, firms like standard work is a term that's used sometimes in, uh, you know, uh, kind of high tech uh, environments. So I had a number of friends who were and, and parishioners who were at, um, I think, Pratt and Whitney back in Connecticut, and they were in management and they were commiserating uh, over the fact that there was a strong push to standardize everything so that people would be interchangeable, that no one would be indispensable. Which at one level makes sense, but at another level, just means you're a machine. The thing that I would add to that is that elites aren't concerned about even their own competency, they're concerned about their credentials. Mm. Yeah. And credentialing and competency are two different things. Yeah, yeah. in in a lot of ways, you know, when, when you talk about competency, you have to ask the question, what do you mean? Um, you know, the kind of competency you're talking about is one thing. 
Um, but being competent at your job or something like that, you know, Taylorism gets you there. You're competent at your job. You're capable of doing it. So what do we mean by it? Uh, I would say in, in the case of the elites, it, it is not even an issue. What matters is the credential, which is one of the reasons why universities are so critical to production of elites, because what they do is they give credentialing. Mm -hmm. And the more elite the university, the more the credential is worth. Yeah. And I think, too, this is one of the reasons why they're so put out by people like Zuckerberg and, and Musk, who just sort of like thumb their nose at the credentialing scene and just say, I'm just going to build a rocket to go to Mars. So goodbye. <laughs> yeah. And then they're even more annoyed when they do it. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I think elites are going to existential crisis because of egalitarianism. For centuries, elites, what made you elite was because you lived in a hierarchical world where... You were elite because you were Theodoric, the Ostrogoth king that conquered Italy, right? That's what made you elite. Today, it's like, well, what makes you elite? Like, we don't really know. So, credentials or something makes us elite. So, yeah. And yeah. that's why they hate Elon Musk, because right. he's elite because of his merit, not because of credentials or birthright. Right. So, the comment was made that elites are going through a kind of existential crisis because... Uh, the old sort of uh, way of uh, belonging to an elite is no longer uh, in place. So, you know, we don't have the aristocracy that we once had. Um, and consequently, uh, you know, the question is, is within, a, within an, a society that's uh, egalitarian, how do you distinguish yourself as elite? And that's why we have credentials uh, as, you know, taking the place of these other forms of, of elitism. Um, any thoughts on that? Sounds right. Yeah. 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 I, I do think that we won't ever have a world without elites. The question is, is, uh, how do we have good ones? Um, you know, how, how, so like when you think about certain people in the past, um, you know, we have stories about them that seem to indicate that they were in touch with the situation on the ground in a way that people who are elites today are not. <laughs> you know, they, they have an... So, like, for example, uh, in New England, you know, the old Brahmin class, as you guys know about, uh, the old WASP elites, it was pretty much uh, a expectation that you would have some uh, time in the military, you know, you'd be a, a lieutenant or a captain or something in the military. You'd have a, a period of time in the military, and that would harden you. That would also help you to understand the necessity of military force being applied in certain situations. And it would also give you direct experience with what? People from the other social classes. You don't yeah. see that anymore. Yeah. Yeah. One of, I was going to add that um, one of the things I remember from my experience uh, – well, both at Duke and Oxford, but in particular Oxford, where I went to school with a lot of our senators' children and things like that, is, you know, you could have academic competence. That's what allowed me to get where I was. But I definitely was not in the elite group. And they they can smell that you're yeah. not one of them. Yeah. They, they, you, you're just, it's, it's all down to your manner and every, everything else. It, it's, it's incredible. Well, um they are very astute at picking up on the subtle clue yeah. of social yeah. class. It's really, I agree. I remember when I, did I ever tell you guys about the time when I was invited to that uh, men's club in Boston, the union club? 
I don't think so. Talk, talk about it. So the Union Club, I was actually invited by George Bush's uh, cousin, Jamie Bush. So he invited me to this. And you walk in, and it's just like right out of Phineas Fogg and Around the World in 80 Days, you know. You got the, they got the you know, mahogany paneling and the big leatherback chairs and the guys in the, you know, that look like they just were, you know, mummified. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then right on the table in the foyer, right there is the New England Registry of Genealogy. Guess what that's supposed to communicate? <laughs> the old families, the old families. Yeah. And it was called the Union Club because it was uh, founded uh, 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 over a split. Uh, there had been another club that had split over the Civil War, and this was the side that sided with the Union. So actually there were uh, sympathizers of the South in Boston, and they had a different club on the other side of uh, the uh, Boston Common. The little known fact. Yep. I want to repeat a question Glenn asked. It was either a serious question or a rhetorical question, I don't know which, but elites in the negative sense. Uh, some of us have been listening to the podcast that Kevin DeYoung had with Aaron Wren where he argues oh, yeah. for righteous elites, and he's ditching the word elites because of the baggage and, and arguing for excellence. But in the negative sense of elites that we've been talking about tonight, what Glenn asked earlier, what do they want? So I would ask the same question. Do they want to be God? Is that essentially how we would summarize their sin? In which case, that would be consistent with what you said, Chris, that, that it's not that they believe that they're right. They just they believe it's right because they do it, which is to say I'm God. I mean, is that yeah. what they want? Yeah, yeah, that's a good point, Darren. I, I, I uh, well, so the question is, is what's behind the, the, the what's behind the thinking here? Uh, why uh, do they conduct themselves in this way? Do they just think that they're right because of who they are, or is there some agenda that they're pursuing? Is that kind of the thing you're getting at? Yeah. How would you summarize the sin or the, the, the sin. In, in the in the simplest form? Is it a desire to be God? Yeah. So is this a desire to be God, or is there something else going on? <laughs> yeah. I you know the best that I can do with this. Um, I think I think this was in reference to my comments about the obvious lies that are being propagated about COVID and the vaccines and things like that. The best that I can do with it, I know some people think it's all about the money. And I'm sure that for a pharmaceutical company, maybe Fauci, some others, money is going to be part of it. But I really don't think that's it. I, I'm, you know, because how much more money do you really need? I mean, are you, are you really willing to kill people over money? Um, maybe they are, you know, I mean, avarice is one of the seven deadly sins and I get that. I think though that it, it, it is something that is less tangible than that. My suspicion is it's fundamentally about power, which in a critical theory world is the only real, well, it's the only reality. I think it's about the idea that this becomes a means, uh, a, a, uh, a, a, prototype a test case for control of the population and that it really is about working to build your vision of a utopia or at least that's what they're telling themselves because if we can only get these idiot rubes out there to do what we tell them to do yeah. then we can bring in the kind of world that we know will be better for everybody I think that's the lie they're telling themselves. And, that's and the best thing to do with it. 
and this is tied to you know people's suspicions that the current you know um, wars and and uh, regime changes are very similar. That if something, if you have countries and leaders in the way, <laughs> um, we have to we have to dismantle them. Um, we have to get them out of the way. Yeah, I think that's. That's part of it. I, a couple of thoughts come to my mind. You know, one is C.S. Lewis, you know, in his uh, discussion of the sin of pride in mere Christianity, he, he brings to the, to the service the fact that it's, a, it's essentially a competitive vice. In other words, uh, yes, it isn't uh, that you really need any more money. It's just that you need more money than that guy. You know, it's, it's about the comparison. It's about the competition. But I also think, you know, related to what you're talking about, Tom, I think there's also, you know, we've talked sometime about, sometimes about, you know, plausible, you know, the plausible deniability of something. You know, you can actually be up to something and be able to deny you're up to it because it's plausible that you're up to something else. Well, it kind of works the other way around. So when it comes to regime change, well, yeah, uh, your, your point is absolutely right. But at the same time, it's awfully convenient that we really do have a scumbag out there that we can remove. <laughs> well, well that's, <laughs> you know, it gives us, the, yeah. gives us the, the justification to do what we want. That's that's right. I mean, but and that's sort of the that's that's the thing. It, it, it and that's it was the same way with you know let's let's connect that scumbag with the other scumbag here and get rid of them. You know, I mean yeah. they're they're convenient. They're they're politically convenient and elite. The the elites can it and all you got you ha, you have a whole. I know people here in Connecticut that just mention the name of any of these figures and they will go into a frenzy. These are educated people, you know, they'll go into almost, uh, uh, you know, they'll be triggered if I guess is the word they yeah. use. Um, and it, it's unbelievable. Yeah. It's just, it's just good that they're incompetent when it comes to exercising physical force because you could just kind of look <laughs> yeah, at that's them, right. melt down and just say, well, that's kind of interesting. Yeah. And you're not actually afraid of anything they can do. So, <laughs> Uh, so we have Gideon, we've got, I want to get somebody that we have not had. Yeah. Yeah, so I wonder, uh, listening to this conversation, I was actually thinking about that conversation with Aaron Wren and Kevin Young also, but I don't think Aaron's quite right in some of his analysis. Like one of the things he says in there is that the rural classes or the rural parts of America are completely irrelevant. Really, it just comes down to these elite centers. I, I think that's fundamentally flawed. I think we're actually buying into the lie. I think back of uh, the podcast you guys did fairly recently dealing with the internet and its influence on people and how it's actually probably somewhat demonic um, in a lot of its nature. And yet, how much time do we spend on that affirming and um, giving credence to these elite elites as opposed to spending time in our real lives raising our real families talking to our real neighbors in real conversation, being about real stuff. I think in a lot of ways, we as people in this room or as a church are just totally buying into the lie and feeding into this elitism as we are um, railing against it. We're just doing the same thing in a lot of levels. So how do, we, how do we change that to where we are people who are actually in each other's lives, in the lives of those around us, focused on raising our families, and to a large part just completely ignoring the elites because that's what would un-elite the elite. Yeah, yeah, so let's see if I can summarize this. Uh, the comments made that maybe we, 
Uh, this is my paraphrase that maybe we take the elites too seriously, that really we have more going for us than we think we do, that we ought to focus more on our own sort of community, getting involved with the people around us and making things better. Um, and uh, there is a, uh, you know, and, and one of the comments had to do with sometimes um, there is a, uh, a sense that we uh, are given that the only way we'll be able to, say, take America back or change things for the better is, is by becoming elites ourselves or bringing the elites over onto our team or something like that. Do you have any thoughts about that, guys? Yeah, I don't think that's, I mean, I, I think the church's vision of its its mission and task, uh, um, and seek ye first the kingdom of God and the wealth of his righteousness, <laughs> um, can't, cannot be um, basically equated with with that form of, of kind of, of play with power the way it's ordered currently. Um, I, I think one of the reasons why I analyze it and look at this, because I do think that this impacts all of us in ways we don't think about. One of the directions I was going to go in with what we talked about was the way in which we become so used to with language, for example, um, subtleties and nuance that constantly shades and, and distorts truth that we also, even as Christians, sometimes become very loose with our language and we don't watch what we say so carefully. And so we start taking on patterns that have been kind of established by, you know, a lot of the education system and the elites for whatever purposes, and it goes all the way down to the church. Um, and and so, so truth-telling um, and being committed to, to a different different form of life that is radically countercultural is not an easy thing to do. But one of the ways of sticking to the mission of the church and its priorities is also to be aware that these things are impacting us and help bring to consciousness, if you will, the way in which we can get sucked into those, those uh, you know, domains without in, in practices without even fully being aware that we're we're being impacted by them. And I think the evangelical church, especially the role that it has had in American culture for so long, and as you're starting to see that kind of erode and people holding on to what places they're given, you see those compromises take place that impact local communities and the church's identity. Yeah, the thing that I would add is that it's hard to ignore it when you're getting it from all of the media or nearly all of the media you're getting it from google and meta and twitter and pretty much all of the major players in um in silicon valley uh both in terms of social media and in terms of hardware and software uh where you're getting it from uh the uh political field where it's being taught in the public schools we can't ignore it I mean, it's there. It's pretty close to ubiquitous right now. Yeah, ubiquitous and iniquitous. Um, and uh, we, you know, we, we in in one sense, I agree with you. One of the things we need to be focusing on is what we can do, which is typically building local communities, strengthening things that way, homeschool networks, all of these kinds of things. 
that yes, we should be doing that. But at the same time, we can't ignore the larger pressures that are going on within society. If nothing else, then because God tells us we have to love our neighbor. And loving our neighbor means speaking the truth in love. Truth in love, yeah. Well, uh, just one last uh, follow-up. We should wrap up. I was going to say, uh, not to the point of ignoring it, like I think keeping our eye on what's going on and yet not getting distracted to the point where hours of our day is just consumed in right. wondering what's happening in the media or what's happening in, you know, everywhere else right. to the detriment of what's actually going on around us and what we can actually change and influence in order to raise up people that will impact the next generation and be faithful themselves. Correct. That's good stuff. Good word. Well, why don't we wrap up with that? Uh, Thank you for listening to this extended version or this addition to or addendum to uh, uh, the Theology Pugcast and uh, our latest episode. And we appreciate uh, the folks here in Huntsville, Alabama. Say goodbye, everybody. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Bye.